Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everybody, this is Mike Mitchell with Lee Arkinall here today. Scott's taking a quick break this week, but we're glad everybody's here for the Out of the Woods podcast, going over the five threat hunting headlines for the week of March 20th. Lee, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Huh? How about yourself, Mike? Doing well. This is uh, this is fun. I think this is the first time just me and you have done it. Yeah, yeah. Holy out. Being at FSI, so I, I guess we yep. did it all ourselves. Yep. Let's try to make them proud. <laughs> we'll do um, it. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll start it off. We'll get right into it. We got the five headlines for this week, kind of bouncing around. Lee, I know you picked a couple of more technical ones. I got a couple that are just talking about, you know, the current kind of status of ransomware and exploits, right? So this first one's coming from CyberScoop, um, and there is a Lehigh Valley Hospital in Pennsylvania that was ransomed back in February. And so this group is from the Alpha V Black Cat Ransomware Crew. Um, and they ended up ransoming, they claim, about a terabyte of data. And back on March 10th, uh, or excuse me, March 4th, they were asking for payment or else they were going to release data around, you know, passport, personal data, questionnaires. And then the interesting point is that there was new photos of the patients that were stored on the, the, the corporate and healthcare internet um, you know, systems. So they ended up releasing a link for about 132 gigs of data after they failed to comply and then said they were going to release the other one terabyte uh, data set on the internet. So the interesting part about this is, though, is that the uh, patient of that released data set sued the hospital. Um, and I think this is one of the first ones we've seen kind of a, an individual sue the entity that was ransomed while they, was, while they were still dealing with, you know, the ransomware campaign, right? So typically you'd have sort of class action lawsuits after everything's settled. This is happening during the the uh, kind of the current ransomware campaign. So um, Lee, I don't know, have you seen that kind of happen before, like a lawsuit during the actual campaign? So I don't, I don't think I have. I think it's normally like the dust settles everyone's figuring out what's going on, what information was lost, and then it's, you know, publicly released versus, uh, you know, this what sounds like, what, double extortion with the ransomware and then the data leakage. But I don't think I've ever seen, and to be fair, I don't think there's ever been um, a situation as serious, or I'm going to say as serious as this, or as, um, I know, highly focused right? with the photos being leaked or... Right posted because that 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 adds a whole nother layer of um you know privacy and you know looking at the law or looking at the article that's just a whole new level of uh what's the word just no privacy whatsoever like it right. wasn't just data it was now photos so i've never seen anything like this before um feel terrible for her um, sure. that's just completely unexpected Right. And, and I hope everything goes, you know, in her favor. Sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because I know we talked on the podcast last week about 
the timelines that a lot of these ransomware groups are starting to utilize where it's really kind of these short campaigns of, you know, we've ransomed or we've encrypted your data or we have access to your data pay up within three to four to five days or else, right? So I think they're trying to shorten the time frame um, that they could potentially get paid. But to release that kind of data in that amount of data, especially with the kind of, you know, information that was in that data set is, is a little scary especially because this hospital did not, it seem, you know, to pay that ransomware group. When we get into kind of the, the ethics around paying these, these members and these groups of people, uh, but it's an interesting kind of, uh, you know, addition to the things that they're already dealing with to be sued by the individuals. And I'm sure that's not the only suit. I'm sure there's a lot more people that are going to, and, uh, and reach out to that group based on the 132 gigs of data. Right. So now they're now they're having to pay the ransomware group and also pay out these lawsuits. So hopefully their cyber insurance kind of steps in. I don't know, you know, what language they have in there for personal suit, but this could be could be a very interesting kind of story to track over the, the course of this. Uh, and fortunately, so well, not only for the, the victim of this, how unfortunate it is for her, but I think an unfortunate takeaway from this is that now organizations might be more prone to paying to right. type of lawsuits whereas it was kind of going the other way where organizations were like well you know we're not getting if we don't get paid ransom we're going to extort you and like you point out the last podcast we did you know well we're going to just go straight to an extortion model where sure. they you know all the data this might just be pulling it back towards the paying the ransom you know direction and unfortunately that number might go up that they're asking for. So, but right. only time to know. Right. And the scary thing is, end of the article, it says there was at least 25 ransomware incidents involving hospitals or multi hospital health systems. So, I mean, these attackers and individuals are targeting these groups. And with that release of data, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of policy and compliance issues that come with HIPAA. Um, you know, I don't know what that does to their, their compliance status as a hospital. Um, but you know, a lot of these these organizations are kind of short-staffed, right? It's a couple of IT people dealing with cybersecurity incidents as well. So, you know, I think with with kind of the degree of information that are stored in these systems, it might be useful to look into kind of rolling them into kind of a higher level policy group, right? I mean, yeah. critical yeah. infrastructure potentially. So we'll see as this progresses, but this has kind of always been an issue. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, based off of the visibility of these type of issues, they can get more access to, you know, security protections, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, I guess it's the nature of the hospitals as well. You know, everyone, and I've never worked in a hospital, but reading the plenty of articles about ransomware and attacks on hospitals, it always like common factor seems to be that Security is completely an afterthought just because, God forbid, we can't get access to our patient who's dying, right. because to the, which I completely get. Maybe this will drive that to changing the culture, but also finding a solution to get rid of that. Yeah, no, I absolutely hope so. Because again, if they have to pay the, the ransomware group and then also deal with lawsuits, this hospital is not going to come out on the, uh, the good end of this story. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's a good one to, I guess, start off on. We'll switch over to you. All right, so my uh, first article is from Akamai. I actually got 
or found the summarization on Leaping Computer. But it led to the actual Akamai article titled Uncovering Hanata Bot, a deep dive into a Go-based threat. Basically, this is a, a large botnet that Akamai has been tracking. They have tested its capabilities and they benchmarked the botnet. Or sorry, so when they're looking at the tool and checking out, the HTTP packet size ranges between 484 and 589 bytes. And then the UDP packet generated by the bot is actually really large because of null bytes capable of over, you know, padding, but it's 65,549 bytes. So the UDP packets are extremely large. And they tested out and they said, or, or they benchmarked the botnet in 10 second attacks for both HTTP and UDP. And they found that the malware generated 20,430 requests in 10 seconds for a total size of 3.4 megabytes, while the UDP flood generated 6,733 packages totaling 421 megabytes of data. Now, that might not seem like a lot, but I mean, if you think about that's 10 seconds. But what they say is if that the, if they estimate that, or they estimate that with a thousand nodes, they could generate about 336 gigabits per second from the UDP flood while the, and you know, using the HTTP as well, they could get that up to 3.3 terabytes per second or terabits per second. And I was like, that's pretty large. You know, what was the, you know, that's large, but how large is large? And then looking back in November, 2021, the, yeah, November, 2021, Microsoft mitigated a DDoS attack targeting Azure customer with a throughput of 3.45 terabits per second. So that's, right. uh, yeah, so that's the largest. So we have this botnet that's currently running around that can easily with a thousand nodes get close to it. And, you know, that's just a little scary, right? That uh, just goes to show that the adversaries are constantly evolving. They're di using different languages and programs because this one's written in Go. I'm not sure which one the, one in no November 2021 was, but it's an interesting read because the deep dive, they jump into different functions of it. And some of the functions are named pretty basic. It's uh, the ending of, or the ending of them are UDP underscore flood, HTTP flood and start attack. So it was, it was really interesting to see what the, what the program and what the code looked like, as well as the figures and the testing. Uh, so it was a good read, but still scary. So, I mean, in this article, they're talking about the benchmark, benchmark, excuse me, for the 10 second attack. Is there, is there kind of a risk of them uncovering the capabilities of this, this botnet and then maybe kind of prompting the group controlling this botnet to potentially test it, right? They haven't actually utilized this botnet in a while yet, right? Correct. I, I don't know. Because, you know, egos go different ways, right? Sure. If, if I'm the organization or the organization that publishes this or, or, you know, creates this malware and I control the Hanada bot, I don't know, you, they could be super happy that a organization like Akamai is saying, hey, like, this could be really, really bad and, you know, right. then sitting on it. Or they could be like, well, let us show you what it's really capable of. Like you said, are they going to sure. like really test it out and say, well, you know, you said with a thousand nodes, we could do this. So check out 
you know, 10,000 or 20,000 nodes. Look what we can do. And then, you know, target right. a large organization. Hopefully they don't. Hopefully this is enough for their, uh, you we know. Got their, the, we got the, uh, the shout out, right? Right. Yeah. And I'm sure they're already going back and saying, well, you know, we might want to obfuscate this code or uh, increase the capabilities if they don't think it's enough. Right. Because, I mean, that's a really good point on uh, kind of different forms of ego here, right? So one, they kind of call out some of the code base, they call out some of the files, they call out where it's been deployed and how the potential exploits could be used to widen the scope. So you have to hope that maybe that's enough. Maybe they're like, yeah, this is cool. We did this or, hey, let's, let's expand on this, test it out and, you know, potentially prove this article wrong, right? I don't know how closely they, I mean, they might have, you know, Google alerts on their name for that bot net, right? And kind of picking up that, uh, that stream of, of call outs. So it, it's a little wor worrisome, right? But again, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of DDoS attempts over the past. I think that Microsoft one was the last one in a while, in a couple of years, but this isn't kind of a normal occurrence for these type of groups. Uh, I think mainly because what we're seeing now is that it's, it's you know, monetarily the ransomware uh, kind of exploitative campaigns are more, uh, you know, more financially, you know, gaining than just DDoSing an environment, right? Absolutely. I think, so the two take, or two, response I have for you is the, the, their, their ARER rules post at the bottom. I will say they might, if they do get wind of this and they do take check out the article on themselves, uh, I could see them trying to figure out, okay, how can we bypass these ER rules? Um, yep. and, oh, and snort as well. But second, oh, I could see them selling it versus using it as well. Right, right, absolutely. Selling um, access. Ransomware, ex, you know, extortion, that's making the big money, but there's also, you know, the initial access brokers, the you know ransomware as a service, uh, things like that. They might pivot this towards instead of trying to make money off like DDoSing people, they might sell it as a service to other organizations or you know to actually fulfill their needs. Right, right. Yeah, that's the, that's also the scary part because I mean maybe this group is doing it just purely for the you know testing the capabilities, and maybe another group would use it a little bit more maliciously. So, yeah, something else to watch. All right, yeah. So moving on, this is this is one we've talked about probably a lot in this podcast, but something we've been tracking over the past couple of years as we've you know worked at Cyborg is Emotet, right? And so now they've kind of shifted again, and they're using that uh, Microsoft OneNote vulnerability to now distribute their malware and invade defense. So they've they've kind of attached themselves to the leading kind of techniques and tactics that make it as easy as possible to gain access to you know. An environment or an organization. So now they're using that OneNote email attachment to bypass some of the security restrictions in, on those targets. So again, it's been interesting. I mean, we've been tracking this for a while. I think they've changed like six or seven times since we've been tracking them, but they seem to go away and then pop back up. And it's they seem to ride that wave of kind of the net new validated methods, techniques, and tactics, again, to gain access to organizations without having to build their own but the kind of underlying C2 infrastructure has mostly stayed the same. The callouts, kind of the method of, um, you know, download exploit exploitation and kind of that initial that initial compromise part has changed. But everything else along that attack chain phase has typically stayed the same. So I'll kick it over to you as a hunter. So what's interesting about this for, from your perspective, Lee? 
So looking at the behaviors, like you said, it's mostly the same, right? It's the initial access is just changing while, you know, it's normally dropping a, you know, payload, VB script, macros, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, like looking in the temp folder, which is a pretty standard, you know, or you can find new executables in the temp. That's, that's a pretty um, good suggestion that something's malicious is happening. But I will say, and I think you you hit the nail on the head, they they rise and then they fall, and then they rise and then they fall. There's this constant roller coaster from Emotech. Uh, and with that being said, I hope people don't take this the wrong way, but they might be like, maybe not the most sophisticated, but the smartest organization when it comes to um, people tracking them, right? right? If they if they just wait for the net new, if they wait for the newest vulnerability to come out and then they just take it and use it for their infrastructure for a little bit until it's patched and then they cool off, you know, other people are going to keep grinding at that and they're just going to be kind of forgotten by most and then they'll rise back up and say, hey, you know, we got the new CV, check it out. You know, we'll use this and make a bunch of money, which is kind of worrisome because, you know, it makes you think that they're just lying in wait constantly uh, and they have everything they need except that final piece, which is the right. new CV that get published. So unfortunately, I do think they are quite smart in that aspect. Sure. And that's maybe how they keep or they've maintained a or the longevity of it. But it is still very interesting how they use those new CVEs and then they still meet the same, uh, you know, end goal. But, and also the obfuscation is always a fun puzzle to work with, right? Mm -hmm. The obfuscation that they use, trying to figure out what it does. But yeah, good article. Yeah, in this article, it says they had taken a three month break and then popped back up, right? So maybe they are looking at, again, from a research perspective, maybe they're saying, oh, this is a really kind of, interesting and novel way to get access to an org let's let's kind of attach that to our methodology and run with it there's a couple of emotet tracking websites that we've looked at too that it's pretty interesting to see the amount of infrastructure changes that they at least have access to right so the ip addresses the hash values the you know the c2 callouts those the amount of ephemeral indicators of compromise that are coming out from Unitet are are crazy, right? There's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of IP addresses and domains that are kind of ever changing once the botnet pops back up, partly because of how they're distributed, but that's why it kind of gets into tracking the behaviors that matter more than tracking, you know, again, those kind of ephemeral IOCs because those change constantly, but the thing that doesn't change as much are the behaviors. Now, the really interesting thing about this one is that they changed kind of their initial access behavior, but you could still hunt for that, right? It's still something that's vulnerable rather than worrying about what the call out to the C2 or the domain is. So again, from your mind as a hunter, knowing that Emotet is really just changing that, that first or second or third kind of behavior for initial access, we can still track them from a behavioral standpoint across everything else they do. And so what's really cool about Emotet is when we were updating our, you know, our packages or the things that we're, we're publishing to the Hunter platform, um, there wasn't a full rewrite. It was kind of adjusting some of the, the behaviors, adjusting some of the TTPs, adding some packages into those collections, but it wasn't a full, we need to like strip it down to zero and start over again. And so we're starting to see that over time where it's really a, a, an addition 
or an additive to the behavior is not a full kind of restructuring of that hypothesis. So I know I know you've dealt with some of that, Lee. I don't know if you have anything to touch on there. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's easier on our end because we just have to figure out that initial effect, initial access vector. Like you said, the one note that vulnerability came out, we tackled it very well, uh, in my opinion. Um, and it's and it's easy for us, and it's easy easy for them, right? They don't have to rewrite their rewrite their chain of attack, and we don't have to really rewrite ours and, and go, you know, like you said, the hunting, the behaviors. You know, we know what to look for with the MOTEC. It's just that new uh, the new portion that we had to nail down, which we did. Yeah. And that's something we've talked about a lot here on the podcast and webinars and workshops is that it's hard to create new tradecraft. It's really hard to sit down and rebuild your whole methodology and how you approach a problem. It is easy to tack on things left and to the right of your methodology and potentially change, you know, those those things that are ephemeral within that. So this is kind of the same concept and thought process we go into thinking about threat hunting. It's really what are those underlying behaviors, right? What are those things that are kind of easier to understand from a behavior perspective and track over time? rather than things that, you know, potentially change every week, every day, every hour, every month. So, so I'll kick it back over to you. All right. So my second article is by Sentinel One Labs. It is talking about the Cat B ransomware. It's titled File Locker Sharpens Its Claws to Steal Data with MSDTC Service DLL Hijacking. What was interesting about this one is that we are looking at the I guess vulnerability that it's using, it's a two-year-old vulnerability where it once again talks about deal or it uses DLL hijacking technique. This time it's abusing the msdtc.exe, which is a Microsoft uh, living off land binary. Um, it drops its DLLs. One or the first DLL is its job is to grab the second one and put it in the system 32 folder. Um, and while while that's happening, it actually uses taskkill.exe to kill the MSD or MSD, whoo, MSDTC.exe process. Once it kills it, they restart it and it um, the executable grabs that first malicious um, DLL and that's how they're able to manipulate that and exploit that vulnerability. Uh, it's pretty interesting that this is that old that I'm not sure if it's, a patch or whatever the case may be. Maybe it's just hitting organizations that have not patched. But either way, to use something that old and still be successful with it is kind of frightening. It also tries to evade the um, sandboxes. So it will look for types of infrastructure that it's running on. So it'll look for type and size of RAM, type and size of physical storage, and checks for odd combinations of processors and cores. So it's rather smart. Um, and then what it does is it tries to uh, steal credentials from browsers such as Firefox, Chrome, Edge, and Internet Explorer. And then it takes bookmarks, block lists, crash logs, histories, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, in sensitive information that might be in the browsers, as well as try and pull um, information from the Microsoft Windows mail directory. So it's it's not only, you know, encrypting stuff, but it's, you know, trying to figure out, you know, grab some other information while it's out there. You know, because we're using passwords, we're using usernames and passwords happens a, a lot. It's very common. And, you know, if they can gain access to your email, then they might be able to maintain persistence 
which would always be a bad thing. Um, you know, if after you clean up the mess and, you know, if you paid the ransomware or if you didn't, whatever the case may be, you know, they might still have your compromised credentials if you don't change them or, you know, kill the accounts. But another interesting read. Yeah, a little more technical, but what are your thoughts, man? Yeah, so as I was reading through it, it's interesting. You know, we're talking a lot about the, the the motivations for a lot of these actors, right? If you're talking about, you know, encrypting or ransoming people's environments. The the thing that kind of stood out to me is that there's no, in the article, it says there's no blatant indicator. So there's not a separate ransom note that's dropped. There's not a change to the desktop. There's no like change to file extensions. It's literally just they drop an insert into each of the encrypted files that has an email address and a Bitcoin address. Um, and they found out that the ransom price increases each day for five days and then permanent data loss after the end of that five days if you don't comply. So again, from the kind of the motivations of these actors, they're starting to just get down to the point of pay us or we'll just delete everything. And it seems that they're kind of doing more of a tactile kind of quick in and out type of methodology, right? Like yeah. almost like a bank heist, right? You, you go in, you ransom and you get out quick. You don't stick around. Um, and if you think about security organizations and you think about maybe medium to small orgs, even some of the, the larger orgs, it's hard for them to engage IR teams within five days. So you have to imagine if you're an organization, you get hit day one, you're really starting to scramble to understand the scope of that, that potential incident. Um, and if you if you don't have IR teams internally, you're having to engage in contracts and pull people in. Now there's a there's a couple of cybersecurity companies that do this and do it well and are known for you know some of these quick engagements. But you know, also based on the kind of the methodology of these ransomware attacks, there's probably not a lot they can do outside of just paying. Right. So it's 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 scary out there for these orgs that, you know, it could be their business is down. Also, while they're trying to get this done, um, systems are down, maybe communications are down, depending on what they've ransomed. And now they have a kind of a shot clock of five days on them. So it's really interesting to see how this has kind of shifted from those advanced persistent threats and those those longer term type of ransoms to you know these very quick campaigns that just say pay me or else, right? Yeah, unfortunately that smash and grab technique is working a little too well. Right. And now, is there any, I mean, outside of backups, right, for production or critical infrastructure, I mean, there's not much you can do, you know, especially if it's not a exfil type of situation, if it's just encrypted data, I feel like you have a little bit more of a, um, you might have a little bit more of, you know, the ability to not have to pay and just say, okay, whatever, we'll just recover and then try to patch however they got in. Um, and it seems like these are more aligned to, it's just data loss. We're not actually exfilling your data. And so again, there's a couple of different methodologies that we're seeing now, but these are definitely probably the ones that are are probably getting paid out quicker and more often than the longer term kind of ransom and exfil type of situations. Especially if they are doing it, the good faith method, right? You know, we have your data, here's some files back. If you do it, you know, if you pay us, we'll give it, you know, make sure it works. The consistency there is if they are successfully giving the organizations to what they need back, then yes, unfortunately, um, these will continue. Uh, 
you know, they will continue to be successful if it keeps happening. But yeah, so, and you know, sometimes it is cheaper to pay that ransomware and get your data back versus having to stand everything up, especially if you are like small to medium organization or a small to medium business where, you know, three, four days of downtime is your, you know, the life of your company versus, right. you know, large organizations that are like, well, you know what, we, we got this, we're fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, oh, and something else the uh, the article mentioned is that a lot of kind of detection uh, products look for a ransom note that's been deployed. Yeah, yeah. And so Cat B appends the note into the file. It doesn't actually drop a separate note. Um, so it's trying to evade some of the the kind of the modern detection concepts or hypotheses that are out there by kind of appending that note instead of dropping a full text file or ransom note on disk. So that was, that was pretty interesting to call out. But again, you know, these, these organizations probably see open source detection rules that are dropped for their malware. So then they start to build evasions against them, right? So there's always that give and take with being kind of public with some of the things in that skill craft you're building against detecting some of these, these malware families. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with like the trends and stuff, like all those reports. Yeah, they're right. like, it, we can't not publish those and let people know what's going on. You know, the actors are going to see it and figure out a way to get through it. Hopefully, we're just one step ahead. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll, we'll finish off on another kind of breach type of article. This one's centered around the NBA, so National Basketball Association. They were breached after a third-party company that had some sort of interconnectivity with NBA was breached. So again, think kind of not necessarily supply chain, but that third-party risk, right? This came about and kind of, you know, highlighted during that target breach where there was an HVAC, HVAC company that had access to some internal target systems that ended up hitting their credit card processing system um, and target was breached due to those third-party risks. So there's a lot of organizations that have come up to help audit that third-party risk, but this seems like there's another instance that it was a, a newsletter service that got breached, causing access into some of the, I think it was the the fans' personal informations. So again, wow. if it's a newsletter, they probably had email addresses, usernames. I don't know if they had a lot of you know important data, but it's still that data risk issue, right? And so you know, this kind of goes into, if we're talking threat hunting, really understanding an organization's, uh, you know, access points in and out, who has access to what data, how's that kind of proliferated, and then really kind of understanding your third-party risk as a hunter is really important. So real quick, do you have any kind of comments on this? Anything that you've dealt with in your life kind of centered around this? No, not that I've dealt with, but this is always interesting, right? I guess, you know, as a, uh, if this would have happened to me, the first thing I would do is, you know, check, have I been pwned, check your email list or check your email and have I been pwned.com, see if it's been, uh, you know, compromised. And unfortunately, like you said, or like we've been talking as, you know, this entire episode where we're there, the threat actors are probably doing the same thing, right? It might not be super sensitive data, but if it's an email that's been compromised already, and then the threat actors have can find it on a forum, buy it for like three bucks, you know, whatever the case may be on the dark web, um, you know, that's what, that's what we're up against. Um, so being able to figure out, you know, if I've been compromised, if I've, you know, gone, or if I had my 
that newsletter associated with me. Um, you know, you won't find out quickly. Check, you know, check the list, and then change your password, and try to make sure it's not, you know, a reused password from other email addresses or any, any you know, credentials that you're using. But no, it, it's interesting to see this not quite supply chain. I mean, supply chain has been hot, right? You're instead of aiming for an organization, threat actors will go through an MSSP or a third-party organization that's managing any type, you know, any parts of your company, gain access there, and they'll get keys to the kingdom. Um, and, and I think you nailed it on the head with the risk. You know, always be aware of the risk that is is out there with this type of thing. And you know, it's uh. It is interesting to to you know think about started getting text messages and and some emails of spam and clearly some some phishing campaigns out of nowhere the past couple of weeks and it's like all right I wonder where I've been popped right I kind of immediately think some website somewhere got access to a list of email addresses and cell phone numbers because typically the email will have like 300 other emails cc'd oh, yeah. so not a very targeted attempt but just trying to get the uh, that you know, one in ten thousand to click, you know, they still get, you know, some benefit out of it. But when kind of reading these type of articles, that's the first thing I always think of is uh, you know, really starting to monitor yourself for those phishing attempts and targeted phishing attempts, right? So if it's a mature actor, they might send you an email that looks like an NBA uh, newsletter, <laughs> right, of the service that they popped you know, and, and kind of doing a more targeted approach to get you to click on something. So I don't saw this article in security affairs, but I hadn't really seen this hit the news airwaves, right? So we're starting to see that this happens so often now that, you know, this might've been big news four years ago, five years ago, the NBA was breached, but a lot of these kind of articles are starting to go out the wayside, which is a little concerning, right? But you mentioned Have I Been Pwned. That's a great place for people to, you know, check to see if any of their, I think they do email and phone numbers to see if any of that has been uh, compromised. Yeah. And, and like you said, you mentioned that keeping your head above the water, just tracking which breaches there have been and, you know, things like this, because I think I saw earlier today that the whole, and I don't want to take it this way because I haven't really read up on it and I haven't really done a lot of research, but was it Silicon Valley Bank? Threat actors are using whatever's going on there, that, you know, debacle. Um, threat actors are using those, that incident. Right. Phishing email now. So, Absolutely. you know, hey, you had, you know, we can get you access to your bank account, even though they're locked out, you know, just give us your new username, password, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so being aware of what's going on, you, uh, you know, and staying diligent with the emails that you get is. Uh, yeah. and, and luckily right now that a lot of times uh, in these breaches, you know, a lot of times those passwords, if they are breached, are at least encrypted, right? So they're not plain text for the most part, hopefully. So you don't have to potentially worry about immediate login those accounts, but it's always good to change your accounts if, if that happens. Yeah. So I think we got through another, you know, uh, you know, top five articles of the week. Looking forward to engaging with y'all, I think, next week. And then we have some some things coming up here in the next month. So on March 22nd, we have Hunting for Lateral Movement Workshop with Lee. Lee, you want to talk a little bit about that? Do it a plug. Yeah, no, if you haven't been to our previous ones, uh, what we do is we provide you, or if you register, we provide you with an OVA. 
we provide you with a live or a live demonstration on how to threat hunt, and you actually get access into the Elastic Sim where we have data staged. And I walk you through two hunts from start to finish, basically showing how to how we can utilize and leverage the Hunter platform to begin a hunt. And then once we have results and we have data, how we can find significant artifacts or interesting artifacts to move through the investigation and continue it. So if we want to follow a process, a process ID, you know, a network connection, whatever the case may be. So it's always really fun. You can, if you, if you come, you can get a chance to earn your level one badge. So there's always a, a challenge at the end where we've hidden a flag in the data. And if you find that and submit it to us, you'll earn your level one badge. Uh, that you could brag about to your friends. Yep. Awesome. Thanks, man. And then we have a uh, a webinar coming up March 29th called Hybrid Hunting, Threat Hunting in the Managed Security Battle Space. So we're doing a group webinar with Newspire. And then we have another webinar coming up April 12th called Top Cover. Again, kind of diving into the management KPI and metrics concepts and methodologies around threat hunting. So with that, I hope you all have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.